You're listening to Uncharted Pages. I am your host, David Wolf, with my co-host here. Alan Harrison. And this is the book review podcast where we read and review, chapter by chapter, the War of the Spark Ravnica novel. So, Al, last we left, we finished on chapter three, Chandra's chapter. We had a bit of story set up. We had some dragons talking. We had a new planeswalker, Teo Varada, introduced, and we, we, uh, we met the Gatewatch. So we're ready to jump into chapter four here, Ral Zarek. And uh, but just before we start, we can say that uh, if people read along with us, I think that's going to be that's going to be best. It's going to be greatest for your enjoyment because this is a, a special novel not to be missed. Oh, absolutely. I think the, the, the I think our closing point last week was uh, we're three chapters in and we have so far not met any characters. Uh, all all of these are so far. It feels more like a dude describing a movie he saw than uh, someone telling the story. Uh, I think it, I was just playing arena, and uh, this 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 I actually this I'm not I'm not uh, exaggerating here. This is not an exaggeration. I feel like uh, on the arena character sex screen. When you're going through the characters, each of them has, you know, one line, uh, you know, something like Chandra says something like, I like fire when it burns or something. I feel like the one line dedicated to each character on the arena sex screen gives more characterization to the characters than uh, this book does. Yeah, uh, I, <laughs> you're not wrong there. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. Just to, if anybody's confused by what I'm saying there, this, is, uh, this book is based on Magic the Gathering, which is a card and video game, I guess. And uh, yeah, so the, the Magic Arena... Video game has all the voice lines for all these planeswalkers that we've met so far, and it seems as if the uh, the characterization is better in game than it is in this book. In this uh, hundreds of words that we've read so far, yes, thousands. Well, maybe hundreds. Yeah, yeah, maybe right, three thousand words. Yeah, we can't fail to mention Ajani's wholesome voice lines. Whenever Ajani's on the board, you just feel good, even if you're the opponent. Yeah, I uh, like uh, Kiora. Is just entirely all fish puns. Uh, that's <laughs> really pretty wonderful. Yeah. Okay, well, I don't know if I've uh, don't know if I've heard Kiora yet, but anyway, uh, we we might uh, encounter Kiora later on in this story, the War of the Spark novel by Greg Weisman. Um Okay, so chapter four, jumping in, Ral Zarek, as we started doing last week, um, I mentioned that I have taken to subtitling the chapters based on what I think is going on in the chapter, and this chapter, my subtitle was four oh four backstory missing because I feel like I didn't understand anything that was going on in this chapter because a whole novel had preceded it. Yeah, and I think it's it's something that the, the author does this very well in the first chapter. The first chapter has a cold opening with, you know, two uh, powerful beings talking. And it's one of those things that, yeah, kind of leaving the reader in the dark can work to add a, a layer of mystery to, to the story, especially uh, with a cold opening. Uh, but here, it's like he's doing the same, but not on purpose. It's it's It really does feel like there's a big chunk of exposition that we don't have. Uh, a lot of stuff has happened. Uh, it feels like we're supposed to know going in, but we don't. And surprise, surprise, that is actually the case. So <laughs> there was a prequel novel to this novel that was supposed to come out recently, you know, ideally before this novel. But for some legal reasons or something, it was delayed until June. So maybe when that novel comes out next month, we'll have a better idea of what happened in the lead up to this novel. That is, that is I, I, I'm not aware of the details of this, but uh, that, that does, that makes sense, I guess. I, I like to I like to think that this uh, prequel novel novel in June will uh, you know really turn this current novel totally around and uh, make us love it even more. <laughs> it's, it's it has a lot of work to do this prequel novel in June. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be wonderful. Yeah, so I've written here that there is a, a massive overload of characters at this point. So I think 
how many characters have been introduced? Like main characters, I guess, we've been introduced to uh, Teo, the two dragons at the start, the five, four, five Gatewatch members, maybe plus a Johnny, Karn, Teferi, uh, Jaya. Jaya. Yeah. yeah, and now we're getting. Yeah, it really is a lot. Yeah. yeah, we're getting introduced to Ral Zarek. We're getting introduced to Lavinia. Uh, we're getting introduced to. Uh, um, what's her What's her name? Kaya. We're getting introduced Kaya. to. Um, a dead woman, Hakara. We have no idea how she died. So all these people are just waking up in this room, and one of them's dead, and a battle appears to have taken place, and uh, a planeswalker beacon has been ignited, and, and that's what called Teo, if we remember back to our last episode where he saw the lights, and all the other planeswalkers also saw them. And th- this is what's calling the planeswalkers to Ravnica. Uh, yeah, and I think it's you know this chapter starts off uh, you know really grounding us in this new setting. So we're an entirely new plane, an entirely new city, um, essentially entirely new cast of characters. But uh, fortunately, uh, we're introduced to uh, many, many elements in the first sentence, uh, which uh, I'll read here. On Ravnica, Ral Zarek, planeswalker and de facto guildmaster of the Izzet League, crossed, his, crossed to his ally, Kaya, planeswalker and reluctant guildmaster of the Orzov Syndicate. That's a, that's a lot to take in there. It's a, it's a lot of proper nouns in there. Yes. Thankfully, as we mentioned, there is a, an info dump before the book about what the Izzet League and the Orzov Syndicate are. However, a lot of people skip shit like that. So yeah, and I think it's. I feel like having some of that to start in a way should allow the author to not need to go back into detail about every little character, or going yeah, go into detail about every little detail. So I feel like he has this. Yeah, well, what is it's like Latin term? What is it? Dramatic, dramatic persona, or something like that. Where yeah, yeah, everyone's listed, all the jobs are listed. But you think he'd be leveraging that more as he's writing, which makes you think maybe that dramatic persona was was uh, put there after this novel was written, maybe as an actor thought at the end like oh wait we need to throw this at the start in case people get lost yeah that makes sense that that could have definitely been like a marketing pr person who was like wait this is very confusing how are no how are people <laughs> going to understand what any of this is yeah maybe like the the publisher was like yeah maybe someone in the publishing house was uh, was just reading over it and they're like this makes no sense i'm gonna lose my job we need to uh to help somehow yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff mentioned in here. So, like, Hikara is lying on the ground dead. She's somebody's friend, but, like, nobody seems to actually care that she's dead. I don't know. There seems to be no no remorse there whatsoever. Uh, she was killed by Lavinia, who was possessed by Bolas. No idea how that happened. The the guildmasters are... Ral was running around trying to stop Bolas. But as far as I knew from, like, the storyline in the game, Ral is supposed to be, like, for Bolas or something. I, like, there were some... Some guilds who are four bolas, so like Ral, Kaya, uh, Domri with the the Gruul. So the, these these guild masters on Ravnica, they were supposedly four bolas. Like the 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 world was splitting off into factions. Like some people are joining the dragons, some people are fighting against them. But now here is the guild leaders of the you know two of the guilds who are supposed to be for him the most, and here they are rebelling against him. So I think that's that's a fine story beat to have. But it doesn't, it, like, it comes out of nowhere in this novel. I have no idea. You know, there, there's, there's a lot of backstory missing, as I said. Yeah, and it's almost like you're almost alluding to, I think this backstory that is missing was very, very interesting. We have, you know, we have alliances and legions being formed and broken. We have betrayal. Uh, we have these, yeah, 10 different guilds with 10 different priorities and and, uh, and strengths and weaknesses, uh, kind of, you know, aspiring to different aspects of this revolution. Um, it seems like the backstory that's missing was was very, very interesting. I think before we move on, I just want to point to one line you you, you alluded to was uh, that Ral, yeah, you said Ral was running around yeah, trying to unite all the guilds. Uh, the line here is Ral had been running around like a headless chicken. <laughs> I think I I was kind of aware that uh, 
it's possible that this book wasn't edited properly. And uh, this line makes me realize that there's no way an editor went anywhere near this manuscript. <laughs> like a headless chicken. How would is that the best you could do? How how would you do that better? I think um, on Ravica there is like a lot. Of, like, I'm not entirely sure the backs of the agricultural background of Ravica, but there are a lot of like unique creatures. I think if you just pick just a, a magical creature and say, I don't know, um, like like a headless cockatrice or something like that. I mean, if you just put in some other wonderful animal or, or some or just phrase it more fantastically than uh, what might be literally the most boring cliche in literature, like a headless chicken. Yeah, I I I almost thought the headless chicken was like an, an Irish thing. I thought that was I thought the people other English speaking countries didn't actually say that, but I guess I'm wrong. Yeah, actually, I suppose oh, I, I could rant a lot about this. It's a, uh, it's this line almost seems careless uh, in in it seems so careless in this chapter because so the English language has a lot of idioms and and phrases that are to do with animals and and agriculture uh, because so you know, human history is so rooted in uh, in you know, in farming and, and agriculture. Uh, so if you like, uh, something that has, it's a lot more prevalent in English language than other languages. Um, like we have a whole lot of idioms about horses. You know, we've got a one horse town. You've got a, a um, you know, Oh, plenty of other idioms about horses and chickens. So I guess, but you know, in case the listeners don't know that, uh, like Ravnica is an entire plane that's you know an entire planet that's one city. And yeah, there are some, there is some agriculture, um, and there are some farming, and there is some, yeah, there are some uh, uh, livestock. Like it's certainly not on the same scale as you know, we would have had in our human history. So you kind of wonder, like, would a phrase like "headless chicken" be in the lexicon of someone who was reared and grew, uh, who lived and was uh, bred in a very, very large city? Yeah, that's a good point. And even like you could make the point that oh, Ra's Arik is a planeswalker, so like maybe he heard that on another plane. But you're you are right that he is native to Ravnica, so that would be where he gets his yeah. idioms and his, his mannerisms from. Yeah, you're right. That yeah, he could have picked up this phrase from another plane. But I guess you know we're like three paragraphs into this two character. Uh, I think if you're going to use if he's going to use any language or phrases, you might as well use phrases that are kind of native to his home plane because the home plane where he is right now is what we need to learn more about. I know it really this this really stood out to me and <laughs> made me. I think I exclaimed out loud as I was reading this and I read that line. <laughs> In the rest of this chapter, there's not too much. It's just kind of all allusions to what's already gone ahead. I I have uh, a, a line that I picked out from near the end of the chapter. I think it's actually the one of the last lines of the chapter, and it's uh they turned to see a wide-eyed Kaya staring out a broken window in fascinated horror. I wrote that down because I was trying to imagine it physically in my head and don't understand how it's really physically possible for so they hear Kaya from behind them gasping in in horror so they they turn towards her and then they see her staring out a broken window in fascinated horror which indicates that they should be able to see her face to see that she has fascinated horror on her face whatever that looks like <laughs> but if they're turning to see her and she's looking out the window how is that possible that they can see her face yeah, that is that is strange. I'm kind of I'm in my mind like trying to plant these characters in this room in a certain way that uh, this is all possible because yeah, she's saying this from behind them, so maybe like they're facing to her side, they have their back to her side. Uh, I don't know. C- considering that like the beacon that they're gathered around appears, uh, as far as I know, it's in the center of the room, and then Kyle, so they stay in the center of the room. Kyle walks over to the window. Maybe I'm nitpicking here, but just little stuff like this kind of like takes me out of it. I'm just like how. Does that physically happen? It kind of seems like it was just written and then it just wasn't considered where anyone was standing. Yeah, I think it's, and I guess yeah, another part you're, you're kind of, you're, that kind of grabbed your attention here was, yeah, like what is, fasc- the author is telling us what is, what, that she's looking in fascinated horror. Uh, a point we made last week was, you know, the cardinal rule of writing is show, don't tell. 
So I think if the author described what she looked like uh, instead of telling us that she looked like she's in fascinated horror, you know, that would you know, that that would something that would, that would ring that it would just paint a stronger picture and give you a stronger impression of uh, how she's feeling. Like if she was, um, I don't know, wide eyed and slowly shaking her head with her mouth slightly open and gasping, maybe like if the description was like that. Uh, you, the reader, might look at and say, oh, yeah, she's kind of feeling some kind of fascinated horror about all this, <laughs> uh, rather than just being told that, hey, she's in fascinated horror. And you're like, I don't know what that looks like. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I, I have a, so this way I'm taking notes. Um, I have you know, screenshots on my phone. This one I've captioned. I was going to try to find this way. It's, um, but yeah, so it's, I feel like the author almost kind of alludes towards Ral having a complicated relationship with Jace, uh, which I liked. Then it's kind of really just thrown out the window. So, um, there's one point uh, a character says, though the guild packs are divided, the guilds are divided because the living guild pact has chased because the living guild pact is still missing. So then Ral, I'll just read the line out. Ral found himself struggling. Maybe the beacon will draw Mr. Guild Pact back to save us. So Mr. Guild Pact there is like in italics. It's very clear the tone Ral is getting here, right? He's he's being sarcastic. The next line is he heard a bit of sarcasm in his voice and frowned. So then I was like, "All right, that's that's a little bit heavy-handed." He's it's very clear from his from the speech of his pattern, uh, or the pattern the pattern of his speech rather that he's uh, he's being sarcastic. Uh, then you know, at this point, I'm thinking, "Hey, you know, it's it's kind of good that it seems like Ral kind of respects Jace. Maybe he's a little bit jealous of Jace. You know, he's he has a certain kind of disdain to Jace. Maybe he has some kind of mixed feelings." Then the next line is, "Ral had decidedly mixed feelings about Jace Ballerin." But he looked to admit to himself that there's no one he'd rather see at this moment. So we came so close to having detailed relation, a complex relationship between two characters established through uh, one line of text. Uh, but the author decided to um, just spell out, tell us uh, how they feel about each other. Which is mixed. The feelings are mixed, yes. <laughs> All right, shall we move on to the next chapter? Yes. Okay. All right, what's, what's this one called? Liliana Vess, number five. Okay. Do you want, do you want to know? Is, uh, my title. Oh yes, that's that's all I want to know at this point. Yes, <laughs> it's not fantastic for this one. It's just I'll give them a target, which is a line. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a line from the chapter, is, which uh, I think, yeah, it's pretty poor. I'll uh, I'll share a couple of thoughts from this one, and then you can give me what you got. Um, so yeah, yeah. The the first thing that I've got written down here is flunky supreme Tezzeret. So that's how that's how Liliana refers to. Uh, first of all, we've got another another three characters here but yeah anyway so Liliana is a big character um she's with Nicol Bolas and she's also with Tezzeret so Nicol Bolas is the big bad the dragon we've been hearing about Tezzeret and Liliana are his underlings uh Liliana is not so willing but Tezzeret is fairly willing he's a he's a bad guy and yeah she refers to him in her thoughts as flunky supreme Tezzeret which I thought was like very corny very cheesy reminded me of like spider-man almost like friendly neighborhood spider-man the way like the way he talks and the way he thinks about people which is fine but i think spider-man is very lighthearted, and this book kind of or the the the, the setup for the story of this book seems more self-serious even though there has been a lot of funny uh, a lot of funny moments so far yeah i, I think well like last week we talked about the kind of language that uh Chandra uses to describe characters and kind of said that kind of annoyed us but i feel like like Funky Supreme Tezzeret is very much something that she'd use uh, in her in her thoughts or in her, her narrative. Because I guess, like, yeah, this really doesn't suit um, Liliana. And I guess as well, it's also happening again where, the, maybe this is something that happens all the way through the book, where the actual, um, the prose uh, and the character's thoughts are really mixed up. So it's like, is Funky Supreme Tezzeret, even though it's the narrator saying that, is this supposed to be Liliana thinking that? 
But then if it's Lily Ann thinking it, that's really out of her character because she's like a, you know, a thousand year old witch. <laughs> I don't think she's that old. I think she's 150 years old too. Right. Oh, that's ah, she's a new one. All right, well, it's half her age, but seven. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's it's the, the tone is certainly off, and and it's certainly jump, uh, jaggled. And uh, yeah, Flunky Supreme has read it to me as well. I think the in general, this chapter is more confused than other ones as well, because all the dialogue in this chapter is like psychic, so it's all between characters' minds, psychic dialogue for some reason, which I think makes it even more muddy, like what is and what isn't a character's thought. Yeah, this sometimes it's this happens all the way through the magic story. It happens in short stories a lot where yeah, characters um speak to each other telegraphically, uh, or tele telepathic tele- telepathically. And um yeah, it's just something that it's it it work it obviously it works well if it's like a movie or something or you know it, it's or on a TV show. But um just in the medium of writing it just does not work at all. And it, it's it works so poorly that I just I just suggest it's not doing it. Um, it's like three characters standing beside each other, speaking to each other tele- telepathically. Just have them speak instead. Um, it'll be clear. Yeah, it just doesn't work here at all. And there's absolutely nobody else around, so there's no reason for them not to speak telepathically. Although I suppose it does kind of set up Bolas as being able to, like, as being a telepath, which it becomes relevant like in a couple of chapters. But I almost think that the way it becomes relevant in a couple of chapters would have a better surprise and be a better moment if you didn't already know that he could understand, like, read thoughts and speak telepathically. Because, like, later on, you find yes, that, yep. that he is, he's, he's reading the hero's thoughts as they think they're sneaking up on him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, this definitely diminishes this. So, in this chapter, they are, they are building a big monolith, um, a massive building. So this is Tezzeret and, and Bolas together are building a citadel for Bolas to kind of lord over the plain of Ravnica. So... I thought that this was very abrupt, that it's like, okay, his conquering of Ravnica is like over, it seems, or what's going on? He's just completely unopposed, raised a section of the city, and and then, you know, magically turned it into a citadel, and then builds a massive statue of himself with barely a thought. I'm just like, what's going on here? Yeah, exactly. It's it's doesn't seem like the... Yeah, it, it, it's, it seems like it's kind of the thing you do after you finish conquering a city, and uh, is it really worth doing now? Uh, is it worth is, is it really worth spending resources and time doing it at the start of your conquest? Uh, other than just to, other than because it looks cool. Uh, so one thing that stood out to me here was that um, the line. So describing this, uh, you know, monument rising, it's uh, instantly a huge obelisk in the style of Amonkhet began to rise up towards the sky. So when if you don't know what Amonkhet is, this, that's not going to make any sense. It, it, <laughs> this is very very lazy. This is this is very um uh, this is very typical of uh, the author of. Uh, Ready Player One, uh, Ernest Ernest Klein, he, he does this constantly where it's like, I'm not going to describe this thing. I'm just going to say what it looks like. You know, it's like, a, you know, she was dressed as an 80s punk rocker without telling us, you know, what that looks like. So here it's like, just, just tell us what the goddamn obelisk looks like, uh, Greg. Because, yeah, if you, if you're, if you didn't play Magic two years ago, if, you, if you've never, if you, you're not familiar with Amonkhet, which for listeners is basically e- Egyptian style playing um, you're not going to know what the sentence being, is at all. And if this is supposed to be a powerful moment, uh, clearly, you know, the author has thrown logic out the window uh, in order to have this, uh, visible, you know, this visual effect occur. Uh, so it's that important to him, uh, but he's not even describing what it looks like. One, one point while, the, while they're raising the citadel, uh, Liliana says that she can feel the land screaming in protest, even though she's not, uh, like, she's not affiliated with like, the earth or 
she's not that kind of a mage or whatever. But like that makes absolutely no sense to me. She surely she shouldn't be able to sense that at all, first of all. And then second, like why? Why is the land screaming protest? This is another building on a plane where it's full of buildings already. Oh, that, that, that is absolutely true. Yeah, like, that didn't occur to me. Um, it is a, this very convoluted way of saying, oh, by the way, green mages are able to detect when the land is in danger or when the land is screaming. Uh, and they just shoehorned it into this description because into this chapter. Because I feel like, yeah, there's so much happening here. Uh, and I guess, I don't know, I, I guess what I am positive about this chapter is that uh, it, it, it is first time we see a character have some kind of inner conflict, which, which is good. Uh, there are some things going for this chapter that are that are good, but this was just not the time for us for for the author to tell us that. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, if Lydiana was a green mage, she'd be able to sense that the plane is in danger. Uh, but she does anyway. But it's it doesn't matter. It's like what? <laughs> yeah, it's very unusual. Yeah, there there is some good inner conflict here with Liliana, and obviously that will come to the fore later in the book, I assume. And Liliana, I think, is a a decent character. I, I like her a lot. I think she's probably one of Magic's best characters, one of the ones that people care about a lot. So I'm, I am excited to see more from her, but hopefully it's a, a little bit better than this. I didn't have a huge problem with Liliana herself in this chapter. More like other things, like Tezzeret, um, not Tezzeret, sorry, Tezzeret barely does anything, uh, with Bolas and uh, some of the like events that happen. But yeah, Liliana herself is like fine. Yeah, I think um, there's a quote somewhere by some clever person or some author who said... Uh, at the uh, yeah inner con- inner conflict is the only inner conflict is the only conflict worth writing about. That um almost like it's if if you have a story where two characters are in conflict, if um, if your main character isn't having some kind of inner conflict, it's it's not a story worth telling. I watched a very long video about uh, Jurassic Park and how even though Jurassic Park is like oh it's men fighting against dinosaurs, a lot of it is also about um the main character, Alan's uh, basically acceptance of him having children or his fear of having children is kind of you know, embedded uh, kind of beneath that story. So uh, it's, you know, if, if you don't have any inner conflict in your story, it's not a story, is uh, basically how this this um, opinion, opinion is. Uh, and I guess, yeah, with Liliana's inner conflict, it's the first time we're seeing, it's the first time we're seeing, yeah, a character struggle. Uh, a character, I might add. So although I, I feel like I should have a big red button to press or like a, 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 a horned fanfare of like, burr, burr, burr. we have now been introduced to our first character in The War of the Spark. We are 12% through this novel, and uh, we have been introduced to a character. <laughs> Hopefully we get introduced to more as we go on. <laughs> oh, at least one more, please. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I also am not into Bolas in this chapter. I think he's, he's a big, dumb idiot, and um, it's kind of at odds with how he's classically been portrayed in the magic story as like a string puller someone whose motivations were entirely unknown. And instead, he's, he's got this line, I'll give them a target. Like, he's literally putting himself out there. Obviously, he's feel, he feels confident because it's like his end game or whatever. But that still just really annoys me that like he's they've pushed him in such a different direction than what everybody fell in love with him for. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's um, it's something like, yeah, like, I think it's just kind of hinted towards in this chapter. Uh, later on, we'll, we'll see a lot more of uh, how... Yeah, he's he's more like um his his characterization feels more like a frap a frat guy a frat bro he's he's bro bolus Nicole Brolis. Uh, he's just like a very overconfident bro. <laughs> yeah, he is pretty swole in fairness. Swole bro bolus. <laughs> okay, let's move on to the next chapter. It's chapter six, Teo Verada. Again, I haven't uh, I don't have a, a subtitle for this chapter, 
because I already used the 404 backstory missing, and I didn't uh, <laughs> I didn't know <laughs> what else to what else to call this one because this is another big info dump. Yeah, I, I, I'd I'd call this um, manic pixie dream rat. Oh, yeah, that's a good one actually. Yeah, so this chapter Teo Verada, he well, last we saw him, he he left his home plane of Gobakan. Uh, his first planeswalk, he, en- he ends up on Ravnica, and he wakes up, and he sees a girl, and she kind of adopts him, I guess. So she, she becomes instantly becomes his friend and starts giving him mile-a-minute backstory and explanation of what's going on. And it's uh, very, very handy that she knows what planeswalkers are. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, in, you just completely summarized uh, everything I hated about this chapter uh, very well there. So I feel like, well, for, I, I myself feel conflicted because... Yeah, basically, yeah, he 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 just meets this very very talkative, you know, mile a minute um, street urchin, I guess, who knows everything about backstory we need to know. So yeah, I'm conflicted because yeah, for, I guess yeah, as I mentioned, this is a, a manic pixie dream girl, which is like probably like the 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 most hated character archetype. It's just a character archetype that I hate so much that like, a lot of people you know, hate hate a lot, even if they even if they don't realize that they they hate a lot a lot. Um, that it's kind of like it's it's kind of like it's it's a character whose role is just to fulfill kind of a gap in the man's life uh, and you kind of wonder like yeah she's providing she's she's drawn to Teo and she's yeah like you said adopting him but like Teo has absolutely no characteristics that are likable that why you know <laughs> why would she be drawn to him and uh, why why would she be giving him all this attention uh, so it's kind of like it's, it's something that there's 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 lots and lots written about um, Manic Pixie Dream Girls and other in other forms of literature it's all very very interesting and it's kind of something that's very evident that sometimes written by a man who wants someone like this in their life uh, to kind of to help them and turn everything around. But kind of apart from that, I actually do like the way that she is giving us backstory through true speech because uh, the author so far has really just been beating us over the, hell, over the head with like a mallet with backstory written on it that um, like the info dumps have been so overbearing so far. Whereas at least when it's being delivered through like uh, a girl who's speaking a mile a minute, it's, it, it's, it's it's still overbearing, but it sounds a lot more natural. It's it feels more organic. Uh, that yeah, she's rattling on about um, yeah, the relationship between the guilds, uh, kind of where everything in the city is. Um, so I was kind of okay with that. Um, yeah, up to the point, like you mentioned, up to the point where she knows about planeswalking, which is uh, was taking that very very far, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, we we kind of get her whole backstory as well. So we find out that she's not an orphan, but she's hanging around her parents all that much. She's between different guilds, maybe. So she knows some of the characters that we've met in previous uh, chapters, like Hekara, who is now dead, and Lavinia and Ralzarek. So she knows some of these characters, and that's how she found out about Planeswalkers. But it's supposed to be very uncommon, as far as I know, for like normal people on planes to know about Planeswalkers. So I find it funny that this very talkative 16-year-old girl knows, and the whole plane doesn't know then. I don't know. Very strange. Yeah. Exactly, and it's it's something that I, I, I kind of finished the chapter on a big question mark because I was kind of wondering, like, so, so I have so many questions about Teo as the purpose of the story because, right, so we're introduced to him, yeah, he's a character who doesn't have a planeswalker, he, he becomes a planeswalker, uh, we think he's going to be the reader surrogate, you know, as a, the, the person who um, we learned about planeswalking through someone describing it to him, but then we didn't actually, we actually didn't mention that uh, during last week's Chandra chapter, there is a big block of exposition from, though, delivered from the narrator, as to what planeswalking is. So, like, at this point, the reader already knows what planeswalking is, already knows, you know, it's like a normal person who spark ignites when they're under uh, under dress or under some kind of stress or, or, um, life, or death situ- life or death situation. So, like, we already know all of this coming into this chapter. Um, so the, the reader doesn't need to know 
uh, what a planeswalker is. I think it would make a lot more sense if Teo still didn't know why he was here. That would be kind of like, that would be kind of his driving force of the story is him to figure out what a planeswalker is, why he became one, uh, how he can go home, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, so the fact that Rat, this character, uh, Rat, knows about planeswalking is, is just bizarre because she kind of has a throwaway line saying, oh, I overheard Ral and Vraska talking. So that's how I know about planeswalking. But that's like, but, you know, this is something that happens a lot in fantasy fiction, fantasy fiction where, like, two characters talking about something that's a big part of their lives, they're not going to go into detail about the basics for someone who's overhearing to understand. I mean, uh, I'm trying to think of an example for real life. Like, uh, yeah, it's, you know, let's put ourselves in a situation. Let's say if me and you were planeswalkers and Ravnica, uh, like you said, we have this whole kind of plot of, uh, of you know, guilds uniting and uh, rebelling against each other to, you know, as a big power struggle to fight against the Cobolus or fight for the Cobolus. So, like, you know, to the backdrop of that, if me and you were, you know, you know at odds during that kind of conflict, like, are we going to talk about, like, oh, did I ever tell you about the time my spark ignited when I was 16 years old, when I was in a life death situation? Oh, let me tell you about that. That's what causes planeswalkers to be planeswalkers. Like, we're not going to go into that detail. So it just sounds to me impossible how the information that Rat knows about planeswalking, she's going to pick up from overhearing a conversation between Ral and Raskin. Yeah, it seems very odd as well, because, like, even even if they were talking about, like, people like Jace or whatever coming, they wouldn't say that they're planeswalking here. They would just say, like, you know, Jace should be here any minute, or he should be here tomorrow, or whatever it is. They're not going to use words like planeswalk. So, uh, yeah. e- even then, like, imagine you overheard that as, a, as, like, a normal person who had no idea what planeswalking was. You would just assume, I don't know what you would assume, but it just wouldn't come into your head that <laughs> somebody could travel from another world i guess maybe yeah, it would. Exactly. maybe in a fantasy setting it would where there's where magic exists already i suppose it could but i don't know we can't put ourselves into that mindset exactly so <laughs> yeah exactly it's it is a uh, yeah, it's and i feel like it's yeah it's, i feel like the way this that kind of that tales arrival of ravica could have been handled like so many different ways i think it makes sense I mean, if i was telling this it would make sense that yeah, he arrives there. Yeah, let's say he meets Rat. She gives the exposition about the Gills conflict in, or yeah, in conflict. I think um, the fact that Ral's Eric has turned on the beacon, we could so if he's expecting planeswalkers to arrive, so we could have some throwaway line of maybe she is familiar at Ral or she overheard Ral saying that he wants if anybody arrives in the city uh, who looks like they're from outside the city to bring them to him, something like that, you know, to to drive her to bring. Uh, Rat, or sorry, to drive Rat to bring Theo towards Ral, and then maybe Ral can deliver an exposition as to what Planeswalker is, you know, telling Theo who he is, where he's from. Yeah, that would that would make a bit more sense, I think. Well, if if, if only we could we could start this again. <laughs> uh, yeah, there, there's there's plenty plenty to change here. This is only the beginning. Should we wrap it up? I think so. Yeah, because uh, the, the next chapter has has a lot of exposition uh, <laughs> delivered far more, far far less eloquently than uh, Rat did. So uh, we spend a lot of time on uh, the next chapter, I think. Yeah, but, um, a lot going on in the next chapter, which is Jace Balearin. Very interesting chapter, one that I want to talk about. One that I didn't actually mind all that much. Uh, it's probably the first chapter where I was like, I was kind of into it, but for some strange reasons. So we'll leave that as a teaser for next week. So you have been listening to Uncharted Pages. We have been David Wolf and Alan Harrison. You can find us on iTunes. So the, the podcast has been accepted onto iTunes, which means that it's been, it, it'll be on everything, basically. Any, any podcast app that you want to search for it on, it'll be there. Uh, you can tweet at us at our 
normal Twitter handles, our regular Twitter handles. So I'm at Govanan, G-O-V-A-N-N-A-N, and Al? Uh, yes, I am uh, at Alan Harrison, uh, spelt like uh, my name, um, A-L-A-N, Harrison, like Harrison Ford. <laughs> It'd be good if you could do a different Harrison every week. <laughs> I was actually trying to, yeah, I, was like, I couldn't think of one spot. I'll do that in the future. <laughs> That'll be my next, my next uh, challenge. Okay, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.